I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics. C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Muses and Stuff. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm just getting over a bit of a bug, so if I sound a little different, I apologize. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, just a little clogged up here, but... uh, The last time... I had a cold and we had to record an episode. You were presenting the episode, so I was yeah, talking you got the whole lucky. time. So I remember your voice was uh, something else. It was so sexy. Yeah. But uh, getting through the winter, just got a little bit of a stretch left to go. Yeah, excited about that. That's how she goes. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. So we are the podcast about uh, women in music mm-hmm. in all different kinds of roles. Yes, muses. Yeah, groupies, groupies, writers, authors, CEOs, journalists, everyone, everybody, all the behind the scenes and sometimes in front of, yeah, 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 and we are a part of the Pantheon mm-hmm. network and um, ha- so happy to be a part of the of that network and great things going on over there. I know the latest episode of Real Rock just dropped yeah. and Andy King is 
friggin' hilarious. Oh, yeah. So if you want some more rock and roll podcasts, head over there and listen to those. Mm-hmm. Um, some exciting news coming with some new podcasts on the network, but I don't. we won't say anything just yet. It's really exciting. It's really exciting. So, yeah, um, before we get into the latest episode this week, we have a couple of corrections. Yes. As happens sometimes with podcasts. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first one is that um, our latest episode we released, episode 100, uh, we released it without the introduction yes. of the guest. It was just a few hours up without it, but just in case any of you early listeners didn't get the intro, I'm sure you understood what Evelyn was all about anyways, but we just wanted to remind everyone that didn't get to hear the bio all about Evelyn. Yeah, so Evelyn McDonald has been writing about popular culture and society for more than 30 years. She's the author of four books, as well as an associate professor in the English department and director of the journalism program at LMU. Yeah, and in our last episode, we discussed her latest book, Women Who Rock, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl. This book has since spawned a new activist collective called Turn It Up, which advocates for gender parity in the music industry, including airplay, media coverage, and employment. Yeah, she's also series editor for Music Matters, so if you haven't already, go listen to the episode, follow her online, and um, get her books. Yeah, I've actually got a few messages from people saying that they've picked up the book and how much they love it as well, so uh, glad glad we turned some people on to that. Yeah, mm. and um, we also have a correction for the Dolly episode that I did, and um, this was caught by somebody on Twitter, so they um, messaged Pantheon on Twitter, and it comes from a Dolly fan, and she said, "There's one thing you guys got. There's one thing you guys are wrong about. Dolly met Carl at age 18. So I, in the episode, said that um, she might have been about 16. She was about 16 because I had read some articles that were giving me different information um, that had said 14, and then I went back and looked at my notes, and I hadn't written down an age, and so I just sort of took it from my what I thought was my memory. But in you, the book, you were in between there. Mm-hmm, yeah. In the book, it does actually say that she was 18. So she continues by saying she left home the day after graduation and met him the next day. She was not 16. They married when she was 20. Back then, most people were married at 18 in the South. So thanks, Renee, for the correction. Uh, We do appreciate when um, that stuff comes up and, you know, you were so kind about explaining the... uh, Yeah, it happens. We're human. (laughs) But yeah, thank you. And uh, that's what we call... um, so if you listen to any of the podcasts on uh, Pantheon or, you know, we used to be Rock and Roll Archaeology, that's what they call diggers. So for the Rock and Roll Archaeology, the diggers are the people that are really, really into, you know, and we're into as well, like the true facts and yeah. make sure that we have the real deadlines and times and dates and things like that. But yeah, yeah. we definitely want to correct anything that we might have mistaken. So yeah. thank you, Renee. Thank you. And then the last thing we just want to talk about is um, Miss Pamela's uh, Doll Con. Mm -hmm. It's like the International Doll Convention, which is taking place in Las Vegas, April 26th to 28th. That's exciting. It's really exciting. So I am... First ever... It's the first ever doll con. So because Pamela Debar goes around to writing workshops in 
the United States, in Canada, um, parts of England, in the UK, um, what she wanted to do was to get everybody in the writing groups as much as possible come to Las Vegas. You can check out her website for more information, PamelaDebar.com, and it tells you how to sign up, how to book the hotel room, which we're all going to be, we're all going to be in the same hotel, and then all of the activities that we're going to do for the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I'm just getting some last minute sort of details and things together, and I'm going to book that. So let us know if you're coming, and if you're able to make the DollCon in Las Vegas, April 26th to 28th, I think it's going to be, no, I know, I know it's going to be really, really special. Oh, yeah. And uh, just a shout out to everyone who's been writing us lately. We've gotten so many nice messages. It's always such a pleasure connecting with listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So today I'm going to be talking about a male muse. No. A male yeah. inspiration. Sweet. His name is Tara Brown. I want to thank our friend Marley, who online on Twitter, on Instagram, goes by Barefoot Frolic. She's the one who posted about this book. Um, and I tagged you in it, right? Yes. Um, I was like, Links, you should do this. I was so excited. I've known about Tara Brown for a while. I always wanted to learn more about him. And finally, a man named Paul Howard wrote a book called I Read the News Today, Oh Boy, The Short and Gilded Life of Tara Brown, The Man Who Inspired the Beatles' Greatest Song. Okay, this is so sweet. I'm yeah. really looking forward to this. I know that we get requests for male muses, and um, just on the subject of Marley, she's amazing. I met her in London, England, last summer or the summer before that, um, because Pamela was doing a writing workshop, and then... Yeah, she's uh, a doll. She's a doll. <laughs> and she was doing a reading that night, and I got to meet Marley in person after following her on Instagram, and I love her posts, and oh, I love her photography, and she's so smart, and she's working on so many cool things, so... Yeah, check her out. Yep. So, we're going to get into it. Okay, I'm ready. Tara Brown was born in Dublin, March 4th, 1945. He was the son of Dominic Jeffrey Edward Brown, who was the fourth baron of Oranmore. Probably not pronouncing that right. And Brown was in the House of Lords, and he ended up serving for 72 years. Fancy. Yeah. He only got out of the House of Lords because in 1999, uh, hereditary peerages were abolished. I'm sorry, what? Hereditary Hereditary peerages? Basically, you get a seat because you were born into it. Tara's mother was a woman named Una Guinness. So Solid name. Yes. She was an heiress to the Guinness fortune. She had older sisters, three of them, and in their own time, Una and her sisters were also famous socialites, and they were dubbed the Golden Guinness Girls by the gossip writers of the time. So his father, this was his father's second family. He had previously had five other children from his first marriage, and Una as well had two kids from a previous marriage. So Tara had a lot of half-siblings. Tara's parents and grandparents all have incredibly fascinating stories as well. Like, that's a really amazing dynasty there in Ireland. It's all in the book. I'm not going to get into it, obviously, that's another story, but for people who want to learn about that, and it is fascinating, it's all there in the book. So it's no surprise that Tara, with these kind of parents, grew up in a very traditional aristocratic household. Actually, it was a castle called McGarrett. It had 17 bedrooms, 3,000 acres of land, maids, butlers, they would hunt on the property. They had visits from European royals and English gentry. They were very upper class. 
You know what I'm thinking in my head right now is now I'm trying to like play the song in my head, you know, the one that that, that he inspired. So probably people should stop listening right now, go listen to the song and come back. Yes. Yeah. A day in the life. That's right. So Tara had an older brother named Garrett. Uh, he was born in 1939, so he was six when Tara was born. Tara also had a siblings die very young, which took a toll on his mother. His mother, Una, kind of became not obsessed with Tara, but they, their relationship ended up being a lot closer, I think, probably because she also lost some kids, and so Tara was... You kind know, of like Elvis and his mom. Exactly, exactly. She lost her one son, and then it was just all... You got it. I feel, I feel like we've heard that story before as well. Mm-hmm. It's not an uncommon thing. So they were heirs to the Guinness fortune. All of them were set to gain a financial sum on their 25th birthday. Their great-grandfather was actually really smart about it. They weren't permitted to withdraw capital, but they could invest, buy property, whatever, to ensure that the wealth would be preserved in the family. I definitely know what capital is. Money, just like throwing money around. They weren't allowed to do that. They could invest, but they, did, they didn't have like the cash right. in their hands. So by the time Tara was born... His parents were already beginning to realize their union wouldn't be a lasting one. So his father, Dom, ended up meeting and marrying a classic film actress named Sally Gray in 1951 when Tara was five. Sally actually ended her film career when she married Dom, and they stayed married until Dom passed away in 2002. Tara and his brother went to live with his mother, and they would you know, visit his father. As for Una, this divorce ended up being quite a freeing experience for her. She was 40. She was alone for the first time in her life, sort of ready to live it up. Good for you, Una. Right? You go, Una. So their home became pretty famous for constant parties, which were filled with writers, musicians, artists, diplomats, and, of course, others in the Irish, you know, aristocracy or British aristocracy. As a child, Tara would observe all this and just ate it up. Some people such as like John Houston, Bogart, Stravinsky, Mailer, uh, the, these were, you know, guests, regular guests at their home. So Tara obviously had a pretty unusual childhood. There were really no rules at that house. He was almost always surrounded by adults. People remember him being very mature for his age, uh, also just, you know, a little lonely. Uh, he had one close friend named Lucy, and she actually lived in London, and the family would f- pay, fly her over on weekends so that he could have, like, play dates Aww. with her. Both him and his brother's school careers were pretty short. Tara didn't see the inside of a classroom until age seven, and while both him and his brother attended boarding school here and there, it was found that they weren't really suited for regimented schooling. Yeah, I mean, who needs it? Who needs Who needs schooling? He actually spent seven months at St. Stephen's in a communal dormitory uh, because there was a fire at Una's home, at their home. Una went to Paris for that time. It was the first time Tara was like a normal kid and got to kind of know his peers before he used to get chauffeured to school each day in the family Rolls Royce. Hmm. So, you know, the divide was there. It's pretty obvious. Tara introduced the schoolboys to things like drinking and smoking and things that were normal in his household, but, you know, banned from most. One classmate 
that was with him at the time said he was a real ringleader. You hear stories about him that were pretty wild by the standards of the time. So they all moved back into the home around 1957, which was about his 12th birthday. But he was like 12 going on 30. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Smoking darts every day. So his playmate Lucy said... He got a grasp of the world pretty quickly, but it caused a sadness in him. Not having the same boundaries that other children had, he had a sensitivity about him, and I came to recognize that later as sadness. He once said to me, while he was still quite young, I remember we were having a pillow fight at the time. He said, people only like me because of my money. He said that to me several times, in fact. So he grew up with a sadness which not everyone would have noticed. He was very aware of his situation i think yeah by 12 tara was like you know what formal education ain't for me don't want to do it his father was not very happy about that but una did not seem to care uh his dad held on to hope for years that tara would eventually go to eaton and insisted he have a tutor with him and he did have a tutor for a while a man named derek kinsey who went by the name deacon So Deacon and Tara became really close, and some considered him one of the most important figures in Tara's life. And he did play a big part in his intellectual development. While regular subjects weren't his forte, Tara loved learning about literature and music especially. Deacon turned him on to classical music and operas, which became a huge passion for Tara. As Tara and his brother got older, they also got more involved in the local music scene. We're talking, you know, Irish traditional, more than like rock and roll here. And they actually would travel all over Ireland, him and his brother, to go to these music festivals. And they would tape the shows and also interview artists and everything. Someone said of them, they both had long blonde hair, which was a very strange thing to see on a boy at the time. And the way they spoke was different. There was nobody like them on the scene at the time, but they loved music. So Garrett, he would soon found Clado Records, which... 14-year-old Tara would also become a shareholder of, and his label actually became a major part of the Irish folk revival, and Garrick moved to Dublin at the time. And his record label, for decades, like, went on. Like, that's what Garrett ended up doing. Okay. So, Una was approaching her 48th birthday, and she went to New York, where she met a 30-something-year-old dressmaker named Miguel Ferreras. Una fell in love, or lust, depending on who you ask, And Miguel would become her next husband only six weeks after they met. It would turn out that Miguel was a criminal and a con man. He lied about his name and backstory, and she wouldn't find this stuff out until six years later when she began divorce proceedings. Miguel, like, volunteered to serve under Hitler in World War II. He was, like, hiding out. He was using an assumed name. A real cool guy. Yeah, that story is, like, really fascinating in the book. Again, doesn't propel Tara's story forward, so we're moving. Read, on. read the book; it's really, it's really interesting. Apparently, it was only Una who liked Miguel. Everyone else kind of saw him for what he was, like a Dirty John situation. Yeah, exactly, a Dirty John. Exactly. <laughs> so, at home around Miguel, things were kind of tense, and they did have like a rocky marriage from the beginning. They would break up, make up, break up. And he definitely was kind of using Una for money and things like that, unfortunately. So from 1956 to 1959, Tara mostly lived in Ireland, but was also now traveling a lot, spending summers in Venice or going to London. And 
1959, him, Una, and Miguel packed up and went to Paris. Tara spent most of his time with his friend Lucy, who happened to be studying in Paris at the time. And through her, he met a new crowd of youths, mostly young Brits who were there studying. One set of Tara... He was 14 and we were 16, maybe 17, but there was never any question of you thinking of him as a child. You immediately saw him as an equal. So they were all pretty spellbound by Tara, and most of them ended up spending more time with him and less time in the classroom where they were supposed to be. A lot of them ended up getting in trouble. Mm. Uh, They'd hang out all day, right? They'd go to the most fashionable clubs in the evening. They said he sort of led us in a way because he knew so much more about the world than we did. This is a 14-year-old kid. Wow. We all just left school, and we'd never been allowed out or on our own before. You can imagine what a fabulous thing it was for us to be going to nightclubs. His friend Hugo also said he had a very developed aesthetic sense. He was years ahead of everyone in the way he dressed. Black drainpipe trousers, mauve shirts, green suede jackets, brocade ties. He looked like he had incredible social poise. Is it easy to find photos of him online? There aren't, like, as many as I wish, especially of, like, that era. Yeah. Uh, but you you can find some good photos of Are him. there some in the book? Uh, there was none in the book. Um, yeah. Is there, there might be. I read a uh, Kindle edition, and oh, I didn't okay. have any in mine. Is he a cutie? Do you know? He's a cutie. Okay. He's a cutie. So, by 14, Tara also had a yen kind of going for the young girls around. He was rather... And it's okay, because he's 14, too. <laughs> because when you're 14 and they're 14, it's okay. then that's when it's appropriate. Yeah. And it wasn't like... It was... It was a 14-year-old love, not a adult love. We're looking at you, Jimmy Page. Someone said, he was rather unthreatening to girls because he was quite short and a little bit androgynous with those waves of blonde hair. He didn't make any attempt to be manly, but he didn't need to. He was just so comfortable in his own skin. So he's apparently incredibly charming. He knew how to talk to all the young ladies. He'd make them laugh and feel at ease from the get-go. His friend Hugo said, I don't know if Tara had any liaisons as such at that age, but he was rather keen on girls, and girls liked him a lot. A good time for him was putting on a record and having a dance and getting all the girls around him. Sounds good to me, right? Sounds like a good time to me. By 1959, music had taken center focus in regards to Tara's passions. He bought a portable battery-operated record player that played 45s. This was an invention that seriously impressed everyone when he would take it out. Uh, Someone said, we would drive in the park on river cruises and anywhere we damn well liked to the astonishment of bystanders. Okay, I'm going to start saying the word dive again. Yeah, right? It's a good one. It's a jazzy word. So Tara spent most of his considerable allowance, which was apparently around... 2000 a month in today's oh, money goodness. on ordering records from America. Artists like Bobby Darren. If you don't know who Bobby Darren is, you should hey. check out our episode on him and Sandra D. Uh, other people like Connie Francis, Everly Brothers, Richie Valens, The Coasters, Dion. You know, he was getting into American music. So Tara and I had a good set of friends who are two to five years older, but obviously treated him as an equal. In regards to Tara's vast wealth, his friend Michael said 
He was spoiled in a way, but he also wanted to share it with you. He never said, this is mine. The rest of us began to say amongst ourselves, we can't keep taking money off this young boy. So we started saying, come on, Tara, you paid yesterday. It's time to go home. Then there'd be this scream from Lucy, oh, look what I found. And Tara would have dropped a decimal note on the pavement for one of us to find. So suddenly it was our money mm. and there was no need to be embarrassed. That's what Tara was like. He didn't give a hoot about money. He wanted to spend it on his friends and see them enjoying themselves. And another friend said, he was a hugely influential figure in my life in terms of how I dressed, what music I listened to, what I thought about people, what I thought about the world. I listened to him, and there he was, what, three years younger than me? I mean, what other 14-year-old boy could influence people like that? Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I feel like that's what I felt like at 14. I was, like, hanging out with people older than me, and I was like, wow, I must be, like, so adult. And then I'll read my journals from when I was 14. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. Like, this was what I was like. Like, I don't understand why any of these people were hanging out with me. Oh, you're lucky that you have journals from when you were 14. I, I can't remember... I mean, I grew up in a small town, so what, you know, what am I doing at 14? Yeah. Nothing, you yeah. know, but you, on the other hand, my friend, I'll you've you got some stories. <laughs> you've got an interesting 14-year-old life, yeah. and not me, so I'd love to hear that someday. I'll, uh, I'll share some of the embarrassing journals with you Thank sometime. You. Yeah. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., 
Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Mine start at 19. Pretty embarrassing, but... We'll share. We'll have a... Uh, trade. <laughs> and if you subscribe to our Patreon account <laughs> and you pay us a certain amount of money per month, maybe we'll share them with you. We don't have a Patreon account yet. No. We're working on it. No. We're not working up. on it yet, but we will. Maybe. So, around 1960 is when Tara's dad and stepmom moved to London. So, he was sort of back and forth between his parents, traveling with each, mostly back and forth from Paris to London. Going back to Ireland for some infamous Guinness parties and whatnot. As you do. As you do. Uh, he made friends everywhere, and he was finally hitting puberty, so he was looking less like a little boy and slowly turning into the man that he would become. One new friend was a man named Glenn Kidston, who was nine years Tara's senior. But I don't they, like where this is going. No, no, it's, it's good. It's okay. good. Don't worry. There's nothing creepy in this episode. They headed off. Glenn was a first-generation mod so that scene was just kicking in, and Tara was really fascinated with him, and Glenn became an influence on Tara, especially, you know, in opening him up to jazz music. So they were going to jazz clubs in Paris and seeing this whole other world of music, and I guess it's no surprise to anyone that Tara was also discovering, like, marijuana and popping a few pills here and there at these nightclubs, and by 15, Tara was known for his joint rolling skills. Mm-hmm. And he also apparently loved poppers. His world was opening up in other ways as well. He did begin to start dating. His first girlfriend was named Melissa North. She was attending school uh, at a convent in Paris. Now, Melissa was 16, and she really looks back fondly on her time with Tara. She says it never progressed beyond holding hands and kissing. It was all still very innocent, but exhilarating to this little English countryside-born girl. And she talks about how engrossed she was, like watching this glamorous family and all their unusual habits. They go out to fancy dinners at midnight, you know, dressed to the nines and... The fact that Tara talked to his mother in a way that he, she'd never seen, like, another child talk to a parent. Hmm. Yeah. Not, not in a bad way, like, equals, and Una wasn't a typical parent, right? Cool, okay. So, sadly, obviously, they're teenagers, they're young. Their relationship didn't last, not because of, you know, of the fickle teenage heart, though, but the nuns became, like, uh, upset that Melissa was going out with this nuns right my own business they literally followed her and were like shocked to see that she was hanging out with like the guinness family and everything and they considered tara dangerous and she was warned not to see him again and she continued on and they expelled her for it isn't that crazy she was sent back to england so growing up with his lineage lineage And with the tabloids always being fascinated by the Guinness family and their wild parties and all that, by the time Tara was 16, he was absolutely, like, a media presence and celebrity, especially in Ireland. One thing they always speculated on was whether or not he'd end up going to school, (laughs) going to Eton, 
Um, as we know, Tara was not keen on schooling in a conventional way. It was reported that he did his O-levels, and when asked for a quote about attending university, Tara told the reporters, I've lived long enough to know that nothing in life is certain. This, this is him at 16. Alrighty. <laughs> so schooling was on the last thing on his mind. Well, I mean, you come from the Guinness family, and you know, yeah, you're, unconventional right? schooling's not for you. You, you know, know, you're gonna why would it get be? this fortune when you're 25 anyway. Imagine you even had the choice. Ask any 14-year-old right yeah. now. Like, so, how do you feel about conventional schooling? I'm gonna be like, I love it. Yeah. Great idea. Or would you rather travel around and <laughs> go to nightclubs and see jazz musicians? A couple poppers here and yeah, there. Exactly. So yeah, the clubs partying, music, the cars, they were becoming his focus now. He would steal his stepfather Miguel's car and go driving. Nope, no lessons, no license. Who needs it? I guess this was his way of rebelling since there wasn't much more he could do in that family, right? I went to a naturopath appointment the other day and they check your tongue. And uh, so she's looking at my tongue and she's like, oh, you've got something in the middle of your tongue. And I was like, yep, I pierced my tongue for about two seconds in Uh, high school because that was my way of rebelling. I was so good. Like I got such good grades. And then like one day at lunch, my friend was like, you want to go get our tongues pierced? And I was like, okay. Um, did you do that to like hide it from your parents? No, no. I went home and I was like, "Look what I did!" And my brothers were absolutely pissed. Really? My mom didn't care. My dad didn't care. But your brothers? My brothers hated it. Oh, they're like that though. Like even my younger brother. I remember at one point I came out when all the family was still living together, and I had like high heels on or something, and he mentions me with the heels being too high. Like he's he he was like um. You know, an old man yeah. at like sixteen. Thanks, Dad. Basically, my younger brother was more <laughs> more dad than in that sense than than dad. No, my 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 actual dad never uh, really cared. That's like, so oh, you look very nice. Um, yeah, so the, I, I said to the naturopath, I was like, yeah, that was uh, a ridiculous decision on my part, but that was my rebellion, babe. Aww. Well, yeah, Tara started rebelling with the cars. As I mentioned, no one was a fan of Miguel's besides Una. So by the time Tara was 16, their marriage was kind of on the rocks. There was lots of fighting and all that. Tara had a very close relationship with Una. They And Tara always came first, which, of course, Miguel probably wasn't a fan of. So Tara really did have the upper hand when it came to Miguel. It was beginning to get to Tara, though, like witnessing his mother's massive fights with Miguel day in and day out. Then on October 17th, 1961, the Paris massacre happened. If you don't know what what happened, uh, like 40 demonstrators were killed when the police opened fire on 30,000 Algerians who were marching for independence. And that caused rioting, which went on for days. And Tara was actually stuck there alone with Deacon, his... uh, Um, school teacher if you will and his mom and Miguel were out of town at the time and that really affected Tara and it was enough where he was like I I think I'm done with Paris for now so he decided to relocate to London speaking of Paris last night uh, a friend of mine came over with his Parisian girlfriend and I knew she was from Paris but I didn't know she was that French so it was so cute so we mostly spoke French 
last night, um, but there were some times when, you know, like TJ or whatever, we'd speak in English, and uh, she'd kind of turn to her boyfriend what? there. What? And, what? And what? Say, yeah, and like, what do you say? So then my friend would have to translate uh-huh. in French, and it was fun. It was, uh, but by the end of the night, she was really tired, and she was tired from listening to fatigue. us speaking um, and so she was tired of us kind of speaking English because it was hard to kind of keep up after a while but it was uh, it was fun interesting I've never dated someone who I didn't know the language of that well yeah it's interesting when people uh, meet someone and they were like there was a total language barrier neither of us really spoke each other's language but there was a real connection boy yeah (laughs) I guess that's lust for sure yeah so this was a very important decision that led to so much change in Tara's life we're just on the verge of swinging London here so Tara would become a major part of that Tara went to stay with his father and his stepmom Sally his friend and jazz mentor Glenn was living in London at the time, so he joined that scene in Soho, which is where all the young mods would gather. Uh, he began going to the London clubs, again, all the different venues like jazz, rock and roll. He was discovering ska music, apparently. Uh, he also met a man named Michael Beebe, uh, who was one of the trendsetters in London, in, in the London circle, and him and Michael kind of became best buddies. So on Tara's 17th birthday in 1962, he got a red two-door Alfa Romera Giulietta Sprint, which is the name of just a super fancy race car. <sighs> yeah. The, Una gave this to him as a present. Una. Um, I don't know a lot about cars, but in case you do, this was a 1290cc four-cylinder racing car, and Tara, who is, you know, really keen on cars, actually made adjustments to it to make it run even faster. So, and no, he hadn't yet passed his driving test. Okay. (laughs) Tara really loved speeding around London and driving in ways that he definitely should not have been. Gotta love 1962, huh? Right? I guess he loved the thrill of the fast cars. Um, driving would become a major passion and he also combined it with his passion for music taking his portable record player out wherever he went blasting the music from his car so Tara's getting settled in London and loving his new wheels but friends also say that he still had that kind of air of melancholy around him multiple friends remember him making comments about people liking him for his money again I guess that was like one of his insecurities you know what if they don't like me with just the money that they like but this is when Noreen McSherry enters Tara's life so Noreen was the daughter or the runaway daughter of an Irish-born postman and a well-known face in the Soho scene she worked in cloakrooms and often sold like amphetamines to support herself she was really pretty often mistaken for Jean Seberg Christopher Gibbs says this of Noreen She had a kind of slightly androgynous quality, and she always appeared to have no fixed abode. You were always unsure of where she'd slept the night before or what she was going to do tonight. She was very winsome and charming and certainly had some kind of survivor genes, which were apparent from very early on. And she was wild. She was very, very wild. So, Noreen went by the name Nikki Rogers, so I'm going to call her Nikki from now on. They met in March of 1962, about a week after Tara's 17th birthday. Her flatmate at the time was dating Tara's best friend, Michael, and 
her flatmate was like, why don't we come out on a double date? And when she heard Tara was 17, she said, I don't do babysitting. <laughs> and Wait, she, sorry, how old was she? A couple of years older. I think oh, like okay. 19, maybe. Just right, not that much. trouble. Yeah. But I guess that's like when age matters to you or you think it does. <laughs> so she tried to leave the house before they showed up, but they showed up early. And she says... I can't say that I was attracted to him for the first, I don't know, two and a half hours, but it was his manners that drew me to him. He had the most beautiful manners and the most beautiful nature. He was incredibly polite with ever, without ever seeming mar- smarmy. I can't think of where he got it from because his mother wasn't like that at all. Very unexpectedly, I ended up having a wonderful day. So it may have taken Nikki about two and a half hours to fall for Tara, but for Tara, it was immediate. The very next day, he went back to Nikki's place, took her out on a second date. He took her he took her to see the three-masted luxury yacht owned by his grandpa, because, of course, that's what you do, right? Yeah. Uh, she said he wanted to show me the boat on which his mother had sailed around the world as a little girl. After that, for the next few weeks, we barely left each other's side. So I can't say for certain if Nikki was Tara's first sexual partner, but he was finally at the age where hand-holding wasn't enough, Mm -hmm. and from the get-go they were both, you know, enjoying each other's company in and out of the bedroom. Uh, They took their first vacation that summer, driving his car to France. Uh, The legal driving age there is 18, so when 17-year-old Tara heard a siren behind him, he decided to take advantage of his car's speed, and vroom, as, vroom. right as Nikki says, he outdid the police car and he did it on roads that he didn't know terribly well. They didn't catch us, and he was thrilled by that. Looking back, I think that was the start of his obsession with motor racing. So they spent three weeks in France, you know, living the life, seeing the old friends, being fabulous with, you know, in that lifestyle. Uh, two days after returning to London, Tara had his first car accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, he rear-ended another car, but luckily he was unharmed. So, sadly, Una wasn't all that impressed with her son taking up with a common, if you will, type of girl. Even though she was, you know, wild and loose when it came to the, you know, aristocratic crowd, she still wanted her son to be married into it, I guess. This baby, why Tara and Nikki ended up squatting with friends during the fall and winter of 1962 instead of getting their own place. Uh, one of the people they actually stayed with was his first girlfriend, Melissa, the one that got expelled. All right. Uh, she was still in love with him, but was sweet enough to let them both stay at her house. Um, of Nikki, she said, she seems so much older than us, even though there couldn't have been more than a year or two between us. She was very sophisticated and just blew you away with her style, which had a sort of careless quality to it. She didn't seem to have to make much effort. She was an original, and I could see how absolutely and utterly in love they were with each other. They always seemed to be in bed having sex, and then they get up at 8 o'clock at night to maybe eat, get something to eat. Of course they would, right? Yachts and their 19-year-old skin. <laughs> so before they found their own place together, Nikki met Una. Uh, Una believed her to be a gold digger. But here's the thing. At this point, Tara has no money. He's not living with his mother anymore, so his allowances were severely dwindled. And he wasn't going to inherit the fortune until he was 25, which was eight years away. 
So Nikki says the majority of his weekly allowance went for petrol for his car and that they were living on maybe one or two bowls of soup a day. So they weren't like, you know, living, living up on, they weren't on the yachts, you know, with the butlers and everything. But she does say we were never happier than we were at the time we had absolutely nothing. Uh, one visitor that would occasionally pop around their place was Mick Jagger. Oh yeah, I was wa- I was waiting for yeah. some name. They met um, him through his girlfriend Chrissy Shrimpton. Oh, so Mick would you know invite them out to early Stones gigs and whatnot. Obviously, by early 1963, another phenomenon began: Beatlemania. Woo. Uh, but while others are enjoying the Fab Four, Tara and Nikki were realizing the effects of all that bedroom time. Yes, Nikki became pregnant. Mm-hmm. So Nikki actually had been on the pill, which had come on the market a few years earlier. But she says that during the winter filled with, you know, soup, um, she was very cold and pale. And Tara insisted she take vitamins and apparently certain vitamin supplements can render the pill ineffective okay so whether or not that's the case she got knocked up uh tara was excited but obviously nervous on how to break the news to una in particular by june nikki was starting to show those so that couldn't keep it a secret any longer they told her when they were visiting her in france that july una did not handle it well she even got a doctor to come to give Nikki an abortion, but hey. Nikki refused. Um, Tara told Una he wanted to marry Nikki because he was under 21. He needed his parents' permission to do so. Um, Tara apparently like pleaded with his mother in tears over it and threatened to like never speak to her again if she refused. She mostly gave in because of the scandal of a baby out of wedlock, right? Like she wouldn't want that either so she or they got permission from Tara's father as well who finally um, unfortunately realized schooling is not in Tara's future (laughs) so 18 year old soon to be father and husband Tara wasn't slowing down by any means especially in that car of his which he used as an escape whenever he could he also began attending motor shows and would drive out to deserted places with his friends and get high and race their cars. Um, all Him and his friends were getting into fender benders here and there, and his friend Michael was in multiple serious accidents that year. He actually fractured his skull, and his passenger happened to be Tara's cousin, Henrietta. Henrietta broke her back. And Sadly, she survived, but she was, like, never the same, and the, the crash affected Henrietta's mental health. No. She actually retreated from the London scene, and she committed suicide 15 years later. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, none of this seemed to slow Tara down or his group of friends. They weren't learning from these fender benders. On the last day of summer, Nikki and Tara were married, and on November 13th, Nikki gave birth to their son, Dorian. Uh, With a baby to care for, the Guinness trustees loosened the purse strings a little bit in order to get them their own place to stay and a nanny to take care of the baby. Before long, though, Tara and Nikki kind of slipped back into their old partying routine, and, you know, it's like they didn't have a child. Right. Yeah. One new hotspot they would attend was a club called Ad Lib. All the hottest 
actors, designers, models, artists, everyone would gather there. Nikki and Tara were rubbing shoulders with people like Michael Caine, David Bailey, Jean Shrimpton, Julie Christie, and of course the Stones and the Beatles. One person said of the pair, they complemented each other very well in a social sense. Couples are a very strong element of society, and it's not very often you get a good couple who just fitted together in terms of look, dress, and style. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they, yeah, were, they were an it couple. Yep. As always, Tara was the center of any grouping, often bringing together new groups of people. Jane Ormsby Gore was a socialite turned muse herself. Uh, she says, he was absolutely central to it. We were meeting people from different walks of life, but we needed somebody in the middle saying, oh, have you met so-and-so? And that's what Tara did, much like his mother, who was also involved in breaking down social barriers. That was what Tara brought to the scene. He had this very light way of being interested and curious, but at the same time remaining cool. He spent his whole life around highly educated, clever people, so nobody ever fazed him. So Tara and Paul McCartney met through Paul's brother, Mike. And they all became instant friends, you know, chatting the night away about girls and music and clothes and cars. And when the party ended at AdLib, the crowd would just relocate to Tara and Nikki's. Oh, cool. Yeah. They would always love going there to smoke up and listen to the latest records that Tara picked up from America. He was always really ahead of everyone else when it came to discovering new music. And he had such a muse quality. Right. You know, introducing everybody to everybody and then being ahead of the game on certain things even exactly in, in, in front of the musicians exactly so that's what Tara was doing he had a state-of-the-art sound system as well so the musically inclined crowd always you know it was always such a great pleasure for them to go over and see what Tara would put on the stereo um, other famous faces that would pop into their house were their neighbors Peter Sellers and Britt Eklund and Roman Polanski the animals the trogs like everyone everyone was there so by April of 64, Tara was really harboring dreams of becoming a full-time race car driver. He was still traveling around, racing down the streets that, you know, he should not have been racing on, scaring the daylights out of any of his friends who dared to go for a ride. He got a new car, a Lotus Elan, which was a two-seater that was made out of really light fiber glass. Uh, it was built for speed, and he became one of the first in Britain to ever own one. I love how you're telling the story, and you're sitting in front of a Jeff Gordon racing poster uh, right now. Right. Like the, it's very it's not lost on me that um, if Tara's looking down right now, he's like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, do you love how he somehow got that poster up in the room? And I was going to say it. Interesting <laughs> choice for the bedroom. <laughs> He put it up for the first NASCAR race last weekend, and it hasn't come down yet, and I don't, I, I think he got me on that one. Yeah, I think I got tricked. You definitely got tricked. <laughs> so that May, Tara drove in his first ever competitive race. Everyone thought he was a natural Tara one. Interestingly, however, it was the only time Tara would drive competitively, though. While Nikki and Tara were very much in love, they were also a young, hot couple who, you know, got roped into married life very quickly. While Tara was more traditional in his wants and ideas of marriage, I think Nikki was a little bit more of a free spirit. And in the book, they suggest that she was having, like, extramarital affairs while Tara might not have been at this time. And that Tara maybe didn't like it, but accepted it. 
another constant black cloud over their marriage, though, was Una's interference. She still wanted Nikki out of the picture, and it caused a lot, a lot of family drama. Una had a lot on her plate as well, though. At age 54, she adopts twins. Okay. Yes. She filed for divorce immediately after that, and that's when they learned about Miguel. It's like, Una, get a hobby. Right? We know that you're obsessed with your son, but it's time to let him... You know, leave, lead his own life. Mm-hmm. By the end of their marriage, it was estimated that Miguel had spent about six million pounds of Una's money on his fashion business and an extravagant lifestyle and everything. Um, as far as Tara and Nikki, they met a new friend, Brian Jones. Hey. Yeah. Wasn't it his birthday? Yeah. It was the other day. There's a quote from Marion Faithful in the book about the Stones and Tara's group joining together she said a lot of these aristocratic kids had a lot going on in their heads people tended to think of them as the idle rich privileged but with nothing to say but tara and christopher gibbs and mark palmer they were all incredibly bright people and they were meeting these musicians on equal terms because they all had the same things in common they were young good looking and rich (laughs) they sure were so tara and brian really really hit it off Uh, They had a lot in common, including Tara's two great passions, music and fast cars. Brian even rolled his Jaguar recently when they were at. They even looked quite a lot alike style-wise and were often mistaken for each other. Uh, Like McCartney, Brian became a regular at the Brown House, and they would go there after the clubs closed down. Nikki says they became like brothers to each other. And Anita Pallenberg remembers them as being opposites that attracted. She said, Tara was such a mellow kind of person. Brian never had that. He was tortured, very paranoid and sensitive. But he would have loved to have that peace of mind that Tara had. That's why he wanted to always spend time with them. Brian didn't have many friends, and the friends he did have, he didn't keep long because he was so messed up. Mm. So Tara was really important to Brian. Oh, wow. By autumn of 64, Tara did something you'd never imagine. He looked into getting a real job. No. (laughs) He applied for an apprentice mechanic gig, and there's a reason he did this. Nikki was pregnant again. Okay. And Tara was finally thinking about the future, that, you know, he would be responsible for all these mouths that they were making. Um, unfortunately, Tara discovered nine to five work lifestyle was not meant for him, just like school wasn't, and he quit two weeks into the job. Imagine never setting a single alarm in your entire life, just waking up whenever you want, and then all of a sudden you have to be somewhere at a certain time. Yeah, yeah. How can you even? It, yeah, how do you get used to that suddenly? So Una, of course, was furious about baby number two on the way, but on March first, nineteen sixty-five. Nikki gave birth to another boy. They named him Julian. Tara was still attempting to make something of himself, though, with, you know, for his family's sake. And while he wasn't to inherit his million pounds until the age of 25, he was allowed to borrow from the trust to buy a share in a garage, which he did that spring. This was smart because he had a share in the business, and he could also apprentice as a mechanic on his own terms, so he didn't have to do the regular 9-to-5 work hours. Uh, but he really did enjoy, you know, working there and, you know, cars were his passion. So he, he definitely spent a lot of time at the garage just on his own hours. Okay, cool. 
It was also around the fall of 65 that two big things came to London. The first was Anita Pallenberg. Yeah. Who was now dating Brian Jones. And the next was LSD, which they all had plenty of. So the four of them often hung out together, you know, tripping. And like with everything else, many remember Tara being the first to, you know, lead people together and turn people on to this new drug. In fact, Paul McCartney... He stated that his first LSD trip was with Tara. Okay. And then is this where the I'd love to turn you on comes in? Probably. Probably. I mean, for sure, this is the era of that. So Nikki and Tara are having a rough go marriage-wise, thanks again in a large part to Una. Guess what Una does? She buys a flat across the street for them so she can keep an eye on them. Oh, no, no. She's very nosy and disapproving and was always on Nikki's case. Nikki got to the point where she wanted to leave London altogether in favor of Spain, but Tara wasn't yet ready to leave London. They both were beginning to be really unhappy in the marriage, though, and Nikki definitely was, you know, straying now. But Well, what is she, 20? Too late, for God's sake. She's got this mother-in-law that just won't leave her alone. Um, So, yeah, that along with Una and Tara's ear was, like, constantly leading them into an eventual separation. Uh, That and the fact that Tara kind of fell for someone else. It's interesting. He fell for a mandolier. If you don't know who she is, look her up. She's fascinating. She would... She was a model who became Salvador Dali's muse. Oh, cool. Yes. Um, It was actually Nikki who introduced Tara to Amanda while they were in Spain, trying one last time to, like, repair their marriage. Uh, Amanda says, that's why I don't introduce my boyfriend to anybody. (laughs) Nobody. Uh Uh-uh. No. No. Don't take the risk. Don't do it. Just just walk on by. (laughs) Amanda says, I was fascinated by Tara. He had such a charming style and such good manners, just like uh, Nikki said. He was really sweet. There was a feminine side to him. He was very soft-spoken. He had very long hair. I very quickly fell in love with him. We started having an affair behind Nikki's back, which was not nice, but of course I could not help it. Mm. We probably could. Something about a guy with manners, you know? Like, manners get you you a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Just be nice. So that last Christmas Tara and Nikki spent together wasn't in Ireland as usual with Tara's mom, but in Liverpool at the McCartney's. Liverpool. And uh, they came back to London. Brian and Anita had moved into that massive flat that they had, and Tara and Nikki became regulars at theirs, like they were at the Browns. And when things were going sour between Anita and Brian, uh, you know, as we know, Brian was often violent with Anita. Anita would flee to... Nikki and Tara's house and stay there until Brian cooled off. So both relationships were having issues and kind of reaching a point, a breaking point. Uh, But not before Vogue called upon them all. Vogue had commissioned a photographer uh, named Ammon Michael Cooper to do a spread on how men's fashion had begun to be influenced by women's fashion. Mm. Yeah. And Michael was in that scene, and he immediately thought of the two couples. So they all agreed to do the shoot. Uh, Anita and Nikki were sent out on a shopping trip to find outfits for Tara and Brian, and, um, like, Anita did their hair for the shoot and everything. Tell me those photos still exist. Yes, they do. Oh, my God. So... 
Nikki remembers the day very fondly. She says, we laughed our way through the whole thing. I can't remember if we had taken acid or if we were smoking something. Maybe it was neither or maybe both. But the five of us, Michael included, just laughed and laughed and laughed. You never knew it at the time, of course. But it was one of those days that you look back on and you wish you could have stayed like that forever. All right, so I'm just pulling up the pictures here because I gotta see them. That's oh Tara my Nikki. god! Right, perfect sixties couple. Oh, these are good. So yeah. Adorable. Oh, it's pictures like these, and just like yeah, bangs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, don't do it. <laughs> oh, those are great. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to post those for sure. Cool. So Tara's 21st birthday had arrived, and to celebrate the occasion, there was to be the most epic party at the mansion in the Wicklow Mountains in Ireland. There's also photos of this. Um, there's photos of Nikki and Tara and Brian and Anita laughing on the mountains. Amazing. Yeah. So at this party, Una paid $10,000 to have the loving spoonfuls like fly over and come play. Joe Butler from The Loving Spoonfuls once said, If you ask me to sum up the 60s in a single moment, then I would just describe the weekend of Tara Brown's 21st birthday. Wow. Yeah. So about 200 guests were reportedly flown into Ireland for the celebration. His friends from every social circle he had, they, everyone attended. Along with Brian and Anita were many, many other familiar faces. You know, Mick Jagger, Chrissy Shrimpton, Paul McCartney, or sorry, Mike McCartney. Paul couldn't attend. The Beatles were recording Revolver at the time. Um, John Paul Getty Jr., just like tons of writers, artists, musicians, socialites, you know, the crew, everyone. Mm-hmm. Lots of alcohol and acid was taken. Uh, there's some funny stories that come from the adventures. Nikki said, Anita and I got it into our heads that Mick Jagger was the devil. No. We locked him into the courtyard and ran into the woods at the back of the house. We had these walkie-talkies, which I think was a present for someone to Tara. We were in the woods, and we were talking on these things out of our heads and paranoid and, of course, watching Mick trying to get out of the courtyard. <laughs> so that party was the party of all parties, apparently. Yeah, it was a, lot, a great, great time. Oh, get me out of this courtyard. I wish I wish I were there. Can you imagine? Uh, oh, I can't wait to see pictures. So that summer, Tara lost something very important to him, his driving license. Mm-hmm. Wait, so he, I mean, he, he, he got eventually one. He had got to one. get one to lose one. He eventually one, got one. Right. Uh, him and Nikki were in Liverpool. He had, they had a big oh, you mean Liverpool? Liverpool. Sorry. They had a huge fight. They sped off. Uh, he was only 10 miles over the speed limit at this time, but the cops caught him, and off to court he went. He had his license suspended for six months, but he could still work in the garage, which he did. He also commissioned psychedelic psychedelic artists Douglas Binder and Dudley Edwards to paint his cobra in a flashy rainbow design. Uh, Everyone knows John Lennon's famous Rolls Royce. John did that a year later, so I feel like he was probably inspired by Tara. Good catch. When the car was completed, uh, since Tara wasn't allowed back on the road yet, he let Robert he let the Robert Fraser Gallery put it in the front window, and it got a lot of news coverage. You can look up photos of that, video of that. Uh, Tara also got a lot of news coverage. He was even filmed for the seven-minute short called Une Journée d'Honorable Tara Brown. Sorry, that's the worst accent ever. That's so cool. Wait, let me see it. Oh, Une Journée avec l'Honorable Tara Thank Brown. Thank you. Thank you. 
So that actually featured Marion Faithful in it as well. Spencer Davis was in it. There's Beatles tunes in it. And Tara talking in French about his friendship with Brian Jones, uh, his business, his passion for clothes, you know, his years in Paris. I looked around for this and couldn't find it. If any listeners out there have found it, please let, let us know. know. Uh, so with a lot of free time on his hands, Tara's thinking more about his future as a race car driver. He still had that ambition. Uh, he even hired a man to become his full-time mechanic and racing manager once he got his license back, which that would have started in, like, January of 67. Tara's also looking into helping create a boutique on King's Road, which was to have its opening that winter as well. So Nikki and Tara are finally, you know, about to call it quits. And now that Tara's free, or at least separated, he picked up with Amanda Lear again. They had an affair, but it was on and off because he was still trying to make it work. It didn't work. So back to Amanda. Amanda says that she had a lot of guilt that she was, you know, with this married man with kids. But um, as we know, that's not the cause of their relationship coming to an end. Things with Amanda were getting serious, though, and apparently even Una approved of that relationship. Amanda says Una would even bring the pair breakfast in bed. Cool, dude. Weird. Kind of creepy, but okay. Definitely appropriate. Tara and Brian Jones were actually with Amanda when they met Dali for the first time. Mm. They were all in Paris uh, at a nightclub, and Dali came over to them, and he said to Amanda, you have the most beautiful skeleton I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, they invited, he invited them to lunch the next day. Um, Brian didn't go, but Tara and Amanda did, and Tara soon realized what a huge mistake this was. Yeah. Because, really. yeah, like Nikki introducing Amanda to Tara, Tara now kind of pushed Amanda into Deli's view, and she would soon, you know, be courted into his world and out of Tara's for good. Yeah. Nikki was running around Europe, and as was Tara. Okay, I just looked up a picture. I see what I see what he means about the skeleton. Once you look up a picture of her, oh yeah, you're like really skinny at the time. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, here, there's a picture of her in oh, between yeah. George Harrison. She, and She was John a big Lennon. muse. She had, and she's a, also a performer. She's she's a very interesting woman. I can totally see about the skeleton comment. Okay, moving on. So. They decided a divorce was the right thing to do. Nikki and Tara did. Clearly, both weren't exactly hands-on parents. And that November, Una actually took their kids to Ireland and was intent on trying to get custody of them. She was basically, I guess, taking care of them with the help of the nannies anyway. I mean, like, what else has she got going on, really? She might as well. So Nikki was upset about this, though, of course. She got herself a lawyer. One of Britain's best, actually. His clients included Brian Epstein, Judy Garland, Liberace. Um, their divorce and, and the battle about the children got kind of ugly, though. Uh, Tara went missing for a while. He also got Amanda Lear to sign a document claiming Nikki was an unfit mother, which oh. Amanda says that she deeply regrets signing. The judge in Ireland ruled in Una's favor, not surprising, and she was granted custody of Tara and Nikki's sons. The divorce hearing was still to come, and Nikki and Tara kind of got nasty with making, you know, threats and stuff. It was not a good time for either of them. Tara was pretty sad and lonely at this point, uh, but he did share a warm bed with Marion Faithful that fall. Oh, yeah. Hey. 
she would very shortly become Mick Jagger's girlfriend. Hadn't quite yet. Marion said, We had a little scene together. It was just one night in a hotel room in London. Like Tara, I married too young. I had just broken up with John and didn't know what to do next, so I was just checking things out just as Tara was coming out of his marriage and also checking things out. What more can I say? It was a wonderful little fling. We liked each other very much, even though we didn't want to get involved in something so serious again. But I do think sometimes how my life might have been different had something developed between us. I think I could have loved him. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cute. It was still a dark time for both him and Brian Jones, who was beginning to feel, you know, the pushback from the stones. He was being pushed out at that point. Both Brian and Tara were leaning on each other a lot in those days. Uh, Brian even went to Ireland with Tara for his son's third birthday. As divorce proceedings went on into November, Tara met his last romantic partner, a model named Suki Potier. To describe Suki, I'd say she looks like a combination of Anita Pallenberg and Nikki. She was right up Tara's alley. Um, one friend describes I mean, you've got a type. You've yeah. got a type. One friend describes Suki and their relationship as she was a rebound thing for Tara. Incredibly sweet, very feminine, very funny, laughed a lot, not particularly bright, reacted in a very light way to things, but also had a sort of doomed quality about her. So on December 18th, Tara had a pretty regular day. He popped into the garage. He hung out with Brian Jones, and he had a date with Suki that evening. Imagine that was just a way people described you. Like, Not very she's right. this, this, and this. And she's got a, you know, a bit of a doomed quality about her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to hear that about yourself. Suki and Tara went to this restaurant. They left around midnight. Tara finally got his license back four days previous, and we all know how he loves to drive fast and all that. So as they went on, Tara, who, as we know, hasn't driven for six months now, right? Uh, for reasons that have never been exactly clear, he lost control of the car. Neither drugs nor alcohol were found to be in the cause. According to Suki, a white car emerged unexpectedly from a side street, which forced Tara to swerve and collide with a nearby parked van. Yes. So Tara may have lost control at first, but he gained it back enough to uh, steer the wheel to ensure that him, that he and not Suki, took the full impact of the collision. Okay. She survives. Tara does not. Right. Apparently, it took about 45 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. I wonder if that had anything to do with it. Yes. So, of his death, Marion Faithful said, It was like a death knell sounding over London. I think it was the definite turning point for a lot of us. It was the end of the 60s for many people. To have someone who was so full of life and so full of joy suddenly taken from you, it made you very pessimistic and cynical about the world, which is what we'd all been trying so hard not to be. Anita Pallenberg also said something very similar. She said, We felt immortal. We thought we were indestructible. But when Tara died, the first of us to go, something changed that day for everyone. The 60s weren't the 60s anymore. Oh, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. So as we know, Nanita dumped Brian Jones. She ends up with Keith Richards and their first baby, which also tragically died. They actually had named him Tara. 
Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, maybe I did, but I ne- I didn't make that the connection. connection. Yeah. Holy shit. This is why I love these stories. Yeah. Nice one. And John Paul Getty Jr. also named a child of his after Tara. So No way. And another friend of his from Ireland. Like, that's how influential Tara was. So Nikki shared what Brian Jones, or Nikki shared that Brian Jones, when he heard the news, Brian broke down and he wept and he came over to Nikki's and she says without uttering a single word, he played her soothing guitar for two hours until she could finally fall asleep. So Brian, of course, got continually out of control. We know he passed away in 1969, but before he passed away, Brian and Suki date. Wow. Of course, gotta wonder if that connection, also, like I said, she looks so much like Anita, but... And he, you and had mentioned he kind of looks like Tara. So. Yeah, and it's that scene. I mean, I bet there was a lot of kind of inter exactly. dating. Um, Suki herself actually passed away in a car crash with her husband in 1981. Okay. So Tara's body was laid uh, to rest on the grounds of his family home in Ireland. Him and Nikki hadn't completed the divorce hearing yet, so... Nikki and Una had to battle out the custody of the kids once again. Uh, the court again ruled in Una's favor. Una, oh. yeah. Una, of course, was never the same without her son. Uh, but she lived until 1995. She passed away at age 85. Nikki moved to Spain, and her and Amanda Lear actually made up. So they're mm-hmm. friends again. They became close, which is really nice. So, according, Nikki didn't even get to have custody of her own children. No, that's like crazy. That's messed up. Yeah, and I I mean, I don't know all the details, but I don't know either how often she got to see. I, from what I gather, I think it was a struggle because Una as well. You know, like yeah, that wasn't that's an unfortunate part of this. Um, According to John Lennon, in his 1980 interview with Playboy magazine, he said, I was reading the paper one day, and I noticed two stories. One was the Guinness heir who killed himself in a car. That was the main headline story. He died in London in a car crash. So this, of course, would become the first verse in the Beatles song, A Day in the Life. He blew his mind out in a car. He didn't notice the lights had changed. A crowd of people stood and stared. They'd seen his face before. Nobody was really sure if he was from the House of Lords. And another kind of weird Beatle fact, uh, three years after Tara's death, a conspiracy theory you know, about like Paul being dead was formed. And there was one crazy theory that... Paul died in the car crash, and Tara Brown was a lookalike replacement and had plastic surgery to, like, turn himself into Paul. People, quite a theory. People are interesting with mm-hmm. their conspiracy theories. So the Beatles were the only band that paid tribute to him. The Pretty Things also wrote a song called Death of a Socialite about Tara. In 2001, Nikki got a hold of Tara's brother, Garrick, and asked if her and Anita Pallenberg could go to visit Tara's grave. And that led to a mend in the family issues, and Nikki became a regular visitor again in Ireland, like, at the Guinness family. Wow. Nikki, unfortunately, passed away in 2012. So, yeah, that's that's the story, you know? Uh, And again, 
this book isn't just Tara's story. You learn about the Guinness and the Brown family tree. You learn about all the fascinating people that went through his lives. You learn about, you know, swinging 60s London, the people who influenced the times other than Tara, you know, what that scene was like. So I highly recommend everyone pick up Paul Howard's I Read the News Today, Oh Boy, because there's so much more in it. And, uh, yeah, that's that's Tara. He Without Tara, I wonder what the 60s would have been like for these people. Wow. And it's just so fascinating to hear stories of people who weren't musicians but were around and were so influential. Yes. Um, and, yeah, like I said, this is why like I love these kinds of stories. You did such a great job presenting that. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. I hope everybody listening liked it as much as I did. And... Uh, I can't wait for everybody to see the pictures and to go listen to that song again. And that was really fantastic. I loved hearing about Marianne and Anita and Amanda. Yeah. And it's it's really nice to see like so many quotes from them in the book too. And you know they were Tara was so important to all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for presenting that. That was You're most fabulous. Oh, that was so good. Thank we've got you. some great stuff coming up for everyone. Yeah, we've got um, an interview coming up next week. And um, it's going to be somebody who we've done an episode on before, but we haven't interviewed yet. Yeah, I'm so excited for this one. It, it's going to be a good one. It'll be... Very interesting. Yeah, I'm yeah. really looking forward it's to it. It's going to be a good conversation. It will be. So thank you, everybody, once again for listening. Um, if you could be so kind to leave us uh, a rating, a review, a nice comment. It really is, you know, still Links and I doing all of the researching, the writing, the recording, the editing, editing the producing, the, <laughs> the social media, the emails, all of that. So we would just, uh, we get such beautiful comments all of the time on Instagram and we appreciate those in our comments and in our DMs and everything. And if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment to leaving us something like that, we would be forever grateful. Thank yeah. you. All right. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.